Hope you grabbed yourself a sandwich for this one. Escapingthecave.com, also on the ChristopherMedia.net network, and at ETC Pod on Twitter. My mom says it won't last. Your mom's an alcoholic. Oh, yeah. Escaping the cave. And I'm getting really sick of guys named Todd. That's Todd, Todd Zilla. Zilla, bitch. Todd Zilla X-Pod. Howdy, Todd Files, and welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, the Todd Zilla X-Pod, ChristopherMedia.net network, also at uh, EscapingTheCave.com. Tis the website to be jolly. And uh, at ETC Pod on... <laughs> technically, I'm on Twitter. It's just a technically thing. It's a really good way to... Uh, Find out if I've posted something. A podcast. <laughs> I added a follower today. I added, actually, I shouldn't say that. I have to be specific when I say these things. I added someone to the list of people that I'm following. It wasn't even a people. No, it was uh, MLB trade rumors. Major League Baseball's trade deadline is this week. MLB trade rumors. Fantastic for stuff like that. So I added them. I'm up to a whopping seven. <laughs> Bo Weingard, uh, Andrew Sullivan. There's somebody else in there. Oh, my friend from France. She's still in there. Three things from the network. And MLB trade rumors. That's all that I have on there. But yeah, feel free to <laughs> follow me up if you like. Not a bad way. I mean, I don't mind if people add comments and things to it. It's cool. We can kind of engage if you're not a dumbass. You know, huh. the thing is, is you gotta, you gotta almost act like I have a whole thing written up here. I'm not gonna go too far down because I, I have this right here. It's entitled "Exiling Alienated Sectarians." It explains why I don't engage on the Twitter. I'm not gonna go down that road today because I have a lot of stuff here. Have I said that before? Here's a fun game, Tonzilla Files, loyal listener. Every time I say I have a lot of stuff, take a shot. I've noticed that I say that in every friggin' episode. It's a crutch in the radio business. We used to call that a crutch. I got a lot of stuff. Just get a little bottle, and every time I say that, take a drink, and we'll all be happy, okay? All right, I got to get right to this today. I'm not going to bother with the current events update that we uh, uh, typically do here. A lot of what I am going to talk about today uh, ties into an exchange I had with my friend Matt. He's sort of my muse. He's pretty much the only reason that I do anything on Facebook. I haven't given you a digital detox update lately. It's going okay. I can't really get off of Facebook. I don't really want to get off of Facebook because occasionally I have some really good conversations on there with a very select group of people that provides me material and gives me sort of a guideline, a, a, a roadmap of which direction that I want to go when I sit down and start scoping and sketching out these podcasts, it does have a slight use. And to be quite honest with you, over the last 10 years or so, I've gone from writing long-form material to getting used to writing on Facebook. This is a sad state of affairs. I am not happy about this at all. But I write better in these smaller chunks now. This is a problem for me. That I've, I've noticed this. I've been kind of tinkering around with this idea in my head, not liking it. Five, six years. I, and for whatever reason, I stream a consciousness much better now on Facebook. 
And then I can take these, these conversations and these things that I've written there, I can look at them later on, and it gives me a roadmap of which way to go. It really is strange. It's effective. I don't particularly care for it. But part of the problem, too, is that, I, as I mentioned in a few of these other more personal podcasts, uh, is that I don't really have a social network. I don't have a salon that I can go to in the old French term. I don't have any hair. I'm not going to go get my, my hair done at a salon. No, what I'm talking about are those things where you sit down and you have like political and philosophical discussions with real human beings who are inclined to have such conversations. I don't have that anymore. And Facebook has become sort of that. And a really, I don't want to even call it cheap because some of the stuff, some of the conversations that I have had on there over the, over the years have been really good, really fruitful. Oh, but that's pretty much my only outlet now to get anything coming in from anybody else. I don't have people for that. My girlfriend tries. God bless her. <laughs> she really does. And she'll listen to me rant and rave, you know, and give me some feedback here and there. But really, no, there's nobody else in my life, in my organic life, that I can bounce things off and sort of use them to inhale ideas or perspectives or, or thoughts. There's nobody. Chris and I used to do this, Friar Chris and I, not Podcast Chris, the other Chris that I interviewed on the show last year. Good episodes, by the way, go check them out. But he and I used to do that. And we'd sit down and get together maybe once a week when I lived in Massachusetts and just talk for three, four hours, just drinking coffee and just throwing it out there. They were exhausting conversations. They were really good, though. But since we moved back to the Midwest from Massachusetts, that has dried the fuck up. And I don't really have any peers anyway, other than him. And Matt is sort of my, he, he's on par with me. He and I can really dig into some stuff. Well, other than that, no, most of the people that I've found that I used to talk to about politics are sectarians. They're members of one political congregation or another. And since I've detached from that, lo and behold, we don't have political conversations anymore. It's probably my fault. But it's also their fault because they're not giving me anything new. I already know their sect. Therefore, I can anticipate their arguments or their scripture. That gets annoying. And I get annoying when I see that. When I encounter that boy, uh-uh. Especially if you're doing that on Facebook and you're not having it like an organic one-to-one private interaction. It turns into this, you know performance art, this theater that you're, you're putting on a show for whoever might be sitting there watching. Now, you're not really having an authentic interaction anyway. You're not really engaging in discourse. It can turn into that trial by rhetorical combat. Gladiators in the Colosseum rhetorically battling to the death. That kind of thing. So I don't even know. There are very, very, very few people anyway. And yeah. None in my real life, and I have to be very, very, very selective of who I interact with online. Again, if I know your sect, I don't really care to hear what you have to say. If you are a loyalist, if you're a fundamentalist of from, you know, loyal to either one of these political or ideological churches, I do not care to interact with you anymore. I know what you're going to say. I have been there. I've been inside... <laughs> Of the resistance. I got the pictures to prove it. I was out active. Well, I don't know if I was activizing 
on Inauguration Day. But I was there with my camera, and I wasn't really, I wouldn't say that I wasn't supporting the protests. I've been there. I spent a lot of time in camp resistance. I've heard it. I've put it forth. I've disseminated and missionized myself. I understand. But because I understand, I can also see it now that I've detached and tokavilled <laughs> as best I can, at least to this point. I can see it now. I recognize it when I hear it, and it just, maybe it reflects something. I don't know, uh, but it just pisses me off. And I consider it a colossal waste of my very, very, very precious time. I don't want to give you any of my life at this point. If you're not giving me anything original, you are wasting my time now. And especially when it turns into this horseshit show where we have to put on a show for everybody on the Facebook or the Twitter. Oh, Twitter's terrible for this. I, I mentioned this before. Whenever I see a comment that I'm like twitching to engage, the first thing that I do is I hover that mouse over the profile and I can all, almost always tell what sect they're from before I do that. The Emerson quote is, if I know your sect, I can anticipate your argument. There's a flip side of this. If I know your argument, nine times out of ten, I can predict your sect. The sheepishness, not in, not in the context of being meek, being sheep. <laughs> it's a plague, man. It's a plague. And it's so rare to be able to find anybody who actually, I, I, I wish I could quantify this more accurately, but it's like 10, 5 to 10% of the people I find have anything original to say. They're just repackaging the same shit over and over and over again. Wiping their inseminated ejaculate onto my ear. And I don't like that. I prefer not to have someone else's ejaculate wiped into my ear. Thank you. I appreciate the offer. Thanks for trying to save me. Thanks for trying to enlighten me. I do appreciate it, but no. Thank you. I'll move on now. Anyway, this is going longer than it was supposed to. I was supposed to be into this in like three minutes. <laughs> Doesn't ever happen. We had an exchange. Uh, Muse Matt and I had an exchange uh, last week, and he asked a question. I, I, I don't know if it was triggered by the, uh, the podcast or what, but he and I have decent conversations about the theme, the, the propaganda theme that I've been on for a long time. And he asked a question, is culture shaped by propaganda or is culture propaganda realized? Does propaganda create the culture? Is culture part of propaganda? And I replied initially, no. We had norms long before we had nationwide propaganda. Immediate connection of information to the masses is essential in Lul's view. It's an imperative. That's part of the propaganda. That's part of the nationwide propaganda program campaign. We had norms. That's what shaped our culture, our myths. In the classic context, in the classic yeah, context of the question, no, I don't think so. But he also asked, or he clarified, he said that uh, he was thinking of propaganda as the building blocks of culture and a society. That's what he was wondering. Something that would make propaganda and culture indistinguishable. It occurred to me that maybe what he was talking about 
is actually something that is in the Jacques Ellul book. And it's something that I briefly touched on with Rich and Chris a couple of weeks ago. I did expand on it a little bit last week. But I mentioned agitation propaganda as a type. That's not the only type. Inclusion or integration propaganda is also there. That's sort of the, mm, the left hand to agitation's right hand. Okay, They go together. It's the after method to agitation's before. It's what's used to bring agitation's wild beast back into line once the revolutionary goal has been reached or the insurgent goal has been reached. You've released the human beast. What you going to do with it now? you got to be able to control it, right? you got to put it back in its cage so it can do some work for you. you got to re-domesticate it. That's the uh, purpose of inclusion or integration propaganda. It's essentially indoctrination into the new post-revolution regime. You've taken them from this one. <laughs> they were useful as beasts of revolutionary burden, and now you got to put them to work for you. And sometimes that is nearly impossible to do. Retaming the rampaging militant activist beast sometimes requires a crackdown on former friends and or collaborators. You see this all the time. Post-revolutionary societies often require a crackdown on people who used to be your friends. If you're a student of history at all, you can think of examples of this. I like to use uh, Che Guevara, post-Batista. He had to get people back in line. They had to become useful to him. And to be useful to him in the new regime, they had to be redomesticated. Pretty simple if you think about it. I hadn't <laughs> before I read this, but yeah, it's true. And another type that Alul mentioned may be what he was on to uh, specifically. Sociological propaganda. Uh, it's also down the line of what I'm going to talk about later on today, uh, pre-propaganda. You didn't think this was all that complicated, did you? Believe me, and neither did I. I thought this was going to be a whole hell of a lot easier than it's proving to be. Let me just say, oops. Listening to the Escaping the Cave podcast on the ChristopherMedia.net network. Also, EscapingTheCave.com at ETC Pod on. I don't even mention that anymore. On Twitter. <laughs> I'm your congenial host, Todd. Hello there. Hope you. I do hope you grabbed a sandwich for this one because today is going to be a little bit long. I'm, I'm foregoing the, uh, the old idea of trying to keep these things at an hour because really right now it's pointless. What I'm going to talk about today is a section from the uh, Jacques Ellul book, Propaganda, that he entitled Orthopraxy. Now, we all know what orthodoxy is, right? This isn't orthodoxy, but it's really close. Orthopraxy. I had never heard this term before. And the definition is this. In the study of religion, orthopraxy is basically correct conduct. It contrasts with orthodoxy 
which emphasizes correct belief and sort of a ritualism, the practice of a ritual. All right. Uh, it's a neoclassical compound word meaning correct practice, actions. And he starts off the section by saying that we now come to an absolutely decisive fact. Propaganda is frequently described as a manipulation for the purpose of changing ideas or opinions, of making individuals, quote-unquote, believe some idea or fact, and finally making them adhere to some doctrine. All matters of the mind, okay? Or to put it differently, propaganda is described as dealing with beliefs or ideas. If the individual is a Marxist, it tries to destroy his conviction and turn him into an anti-Marxist. This is how propaganda is frequently described. It tries to convince, to bring about a decision, to create a firm adherence to some quote-unquote truth. Then, obviously, if the conviction is sufficiently wrong, after some soul-searching, the individual is ready for action. That is how Alul says propaganda is frequently described. Then he says this line of reasoning is completely wrong. To view propaganda as still being what it was in 1850 is to cling to an obsolete concept of man and of the means to influence him. It is to condemn oneself to understand nothing about modern propaganda. The aim of modern propaganda is no longer to modify ideas, but to provoke action. It's not about changing adherence to a doctrine, but to make the individual cling irrationally to a process of action. It is no longer to lead to a choice, but to loosen the reflexes. It's no longer to transform an opinion, but to arouse an active and mythical belief. Active and mythical belief. From there, he moves on to um, mentioning in passing how badly equipped opinion surveys, how badly equipped they are to gauge propaganda. He says that to simply ask an individual if he believes this or that, or if he has this or that idea, gives absolutely no indication of what behavior he will adopt or what action he will take. This is going to come up again in the segment today. Asking somebody what they believe gives absolutely no indication of what behavior they'll adopt or what action they will take. Only action, not belief, only action is of concern to modern propaganda. For its aim is to precipitate an individual's action with maximum effectiveness and economy. And one of the notes he puts here with this is really interesting. Behavior is of greater importance. The morale is volatile, varies readily. Therefore, above all, the right action, action must be obtained. The right behavior has to be maintained. In an analysis of the propaganda, specialists have especially noted this desire to obtain immediate action rather than a change of opinion. The same idea was held by Mao. Propaganda aims at mobilizing the masses, thus it is not necessary to change their opinion, but to make all individuals jointly attack a task. Even political education was essentially aiming at mobilization, activization, proselytes, and militants. The propagandist, therefore, does not normally address himself to the individual's intelligence for the process of intellectual persuasion 
is long and uncertain, and the road from such an intellectual conviction to action is even longer. The individual rarely acts purely on a basis of an idea. That's the truth. Moreover, to place propaganda efforts on the intellectual level would require that the propagandist engage in individual debate with each person, which is absolutely unthinkable. It's necessary to obtain at least a minimum of participation from everybody. I'm going to repeat that. It's necessary to obtain at least a minimum of participation from everybody. This is important. Another note here, the passive participation. This passive participation is what Goebbels meant when he said, I conceive of a radio program that will make each listener participate in the events of the nation. That was what Goebbels wanted. That would have been his dream in 1935. A radio program that will make each listener participate in the events of the nation. How would they do that? Would it look anything like today? Are you participating in the events of the nation in your mind at a minimal level when you run to social media? When you start reading on social media, keep up with current events? Are you participating in the events of a nation? I say yes, I say yes, you are. But Alul adds, at the same time, the listener is forced into passivity. By the dictator. Who's dictating? Cable news. This is the current events man. Drowning in data here in 2019. I mean, yeah, you're consuming all of this data. Choking and drowning in data. But in the end, because you lack context and you lack real understanding. Because you're bouncing from place to place to place to place to place like a rock skimming across the surface. Without ever sinking beneath the waterline, you're less informed. Nicholas Carr. Another parallel there that I'll probably get back to. It's, uh, I'll certainly get back to that. Back to Alul, he says that it, uh, this participation can be active or passive, but in any case, it is not simply a matter of public opinion. To see propaganda only as something related to public opinion implies a great intellectual independence on the part of the propagandee. (laughs) Who is, after all, only a third party in any political action? And who is asked only one opinion? This obviously coincides with the conception of liberal democracy, which assumes that the most one can do with a citizen is to change his opinion in such a fashion as to win his vote at election time. The concept of a close relationship between public opinion and propaganda rests on the presumption of an independent popular will. The presumption of an independent popular will. If this concept were right, the role of propaganda would be to modify that popular will, which, of course, expresses itself in votes. But what this concept does not take into consideration is that the injection of propaganda into the mechanism of popular action actually suppresses suppresses liberal democracy, after which we are no longer dealing with votes or the people's sovereignty. Propaganda, therefore, aims solely at participation. Participation may be active or passive. Active if the propaganda has been able to mobilize the individual for action. Passive participation if the individual does not act directly but psychologically 
supports that action? Collaborators. Silent collaborators. Silent supporters. Now, maybe you're confused here, right? Doesn't this bring us right back to public opinion? According to a Mr. Alul, certainly not. For opinion leaves the individual a mere spectator who may eventually, but not necessarily, resort to action. Therefore, the idea of participation is much stronger. He uses it like this. The supporter of a football team, though not physically in the game, makes his presence felt psychologically by rooting for the players, cheering them on, pushing them to outdo themselves. Similarly, the faithful who attend Mass do not interfere physically, but their participation is positive, changes the nature of the phenomenon itself, what he means by passive participation obtained through propaganda. This is the social media influencer follower thing. The propagandist follower, the likes, the shares, the Twitter followers is clout and status. Or achieving an action goal in 2019 by getting some crap to go viral, to get other people to participate in it. Such an action cannot be obtained by the process of choice and deliberation. All right? Alul says to be effective, propaganda must constantly short-circuit all thought and decision. Must operate on the individual at the level of the unconscious. He must not know that he is being shaped by outside forces. This is one of the conditions for the success of propaganda. I'm going to repeat that. He must not know that he is being shaped by outside forces. But some central core in him must be reached in order to release the mechanism in the unconscious, which will provide the appropriate and expected action. Motivational research studies in advertising are really good at this. I'm sure I'll be hearing more about this when I dive into Bernays. I mean, all you have to do is pay attention to any kind of advertising today. I'm going to repeat this. Some central core in him must be reached in order to release the mechanism in the unconscious mind, which will provide the appropriate action. He continues on saying, he just said that the action exactly suited to its ends must be obtained. Then he says that that leads him to state that if the classic but outmoded view of propaganda consists in defining it as an adherence of man to an orthodoxy, true propaganda seeks, on the contrary, to obtain an action that in itself, and not because of the value judgments of the person who was acting, leads directly to a goal, which for the individual is not a conscious and intentional objective to be obtained, but which is considered such by the propagandist. I'm going to say it again. An action that in itself and not because of the value judgments of the person who is acting leads directly to a goal, which for the individual is not a conscious and intentional objective to be obtained. No. Considered such by the propagandist. Manipulation. As a particular example of a more general problem, he says, separation of thought and action in our society. I'll repeat that too. Example of a more general problem, the separation of thought and action in our society. I'll remind you that this was 1965 that this was written. 
And he says we are living at a time when systematically, though without our wanting it so, action and thought are being separated. He says that in our society, he who thinks can no longer act for himself. He must act through the agency of others. And in many cases, he cannot act at all. He who acts cannot first think out his action, either because of lack of time and the burden of his personal problems, or because society's plan demands that he translate others' thoughts into actions. <laughs> yeah, and we see the same division within the individual himself, for he can use his mind only outside the area of his job in order to find himself, to use his leisure time to better himself, to discover what best suits him, and thus to individualize himself. Whereas in the context of his work, he yields to the common necessity, to the common method, the need to incorporate his own work into the overall plan. Escape into dreams is suggested to him while he performs wholly mechanized actions. I related very much to this paragraph. <laughs> I couldn't do that. I could not do I could not shut my brain off uh, when I was doing factory work. I just couldn't do it. I wanted to die. I could not just escape off into dreamland and go through these mechanized actions day in and day out, weeks, months, years on end. I'm not saying this to you know prop myself up and say I'm better than any, anybody. I admire people who can do that. I admire people who can do that. I'll continue with the lull. Propaganda creates the same division. Of course, it does not cancel out our personality. It leaves man complete freedom of thought, except in his political or social action, where we find him channeled and engaged in the actions that do not necessarily conform to his private beliefs. That's profound. He can even have political convictions and still be led to act in a manner apparently contradictory to them. There is not necessarily any continuity between conviction and action and no intrinsic rationality in opinions or acts. He says, in fact, there is a certain distance and divergence between opinion and action. I know a lot of people are going to relate to this. Let me repeat that. There is a certain distance and divergence between opinion and action, between morale and behavior. A man may have a favorable opinion of Jews and still exhibit hostile behavior, he says. Similarly, we observed that people rarely know in advance what they want and even less what they want to do. And this next part's great. And once they have taken action, they are capable of declaring in good faith not lying, declaring in good faith that they acted in a way other than the way they actually did act. Does that sound familiar to you? Man does not obey his clear opinions or what he believes to be his deliberate will. Repeat it again. Man does not obey his clear opinions or what he believes to be his deliberate will. To control opinion, one must be aware that there is an abyss between what a man says and what he does. Remember, we're talking about the field of actions here, right? His actions often do not correspond to any clear motive, 
or to what one would have expected from a previous impression that he made. Let me repeat that too. His actions often do not correspond to any clear motive or to what one would have expected from a previous impression that he made. Because of this difference between opinion and action, the propagandist who seeks to obtain action by changing opinions cannot be at all certain of success. He must, therefore, find other ways to secure action. That is a big deal. And it's something that I think a lot of people, most people, (laughs) I think it's a source of friction in a lot of people's lives. A source of quiet anxiety, I dare say. People's actions and people's thoughts and what they want to do are often not the same thing. He continues on to say that into these gaps in continuity, propaganda inserts itself as a lever. Into these gaps in consistency. Gaps in consistency. It's another way to put it. Propaganda inserts itself as a lever. It does not seek to create wise or reasonable men, but proselytes and militants. And he says it brings us back to the question of organization, for the proselyte incited to action by propaganda cannot be left alone, oh no, cannot be entrusted to himself. If the action obtained by propaganda is to be appropriate, it cannot be individual. It must be collective. Propaganda has meaning only when it obtains convergence, coexistence of a multiplicity of individual action reflexes whose coordination can be achieved only through the intermediary of an organization. I'll say that again. Propaganda has meaning only when it obtains convergence of a multiplicity of individual action reflexes whose coordination can only be achieved through the intermediary of an organization. The action reflex obtained by propaganda is only beginning a point of departure. It will develop harmoniously only if there is an organization in which, and thanks to which, the proselyte becomes militant. He insists again that organization is an intrinsic part of propaganda. He says that it's an illusion to think one can separate propaganda and organization. Use the example of the Soviet Union. An agitator in the old Soviet Union must be an organizer of the masses. Before that, Vladimir Lenin said that a newspaper is propaganda, collective agitation, and a collective organization. Lenin always ties these two elements together. Propaganda among the masses goes hand-in-hand with organization of the masses and the creation of the masses. Through organization, the proselyte receives an overwhelming impulse that makes him act with the whole of his being. He's actually transformed into a religious man in the psychosociological sense of the word. Justice Justice, oh here it is, justice enters into the action he performs because of the organization of which he is a part. Thus his action is integrated into a group of conforming actions. 
Not only does such integration seem to be the principal aim of all propaganda today, it also is what makes the effect of propaganda last. Integration into a group. I love the phrase. A religious man in the psychosociological sense of the term. Ideological religion. I guess the idea <laughs> has legs. According to Alul, action makes propaganda's effect irreversible. He who acts in obedience to propaganda can never go back. He is now obliged to believe in that propaganda because of his past action. This makes perfect sense. He is obliged to receive from propaganda his justification and authority, without which his action will seem to him absurd or unjust. Which would be, of course, intolerable. Can't have that in your mind. He's obliged to continue to advance in the direction indicated by propaganda, for action demands more action. He is what one calls committed. He is certainly what the Communist Party anticipates, for example, and what the Nazis accomplished. I've used the analogy before of fine, upstanding community men working at Auschwitz. I think that uh, Shire talked about this in Rise of Fall of the Third Reich. I think this is the mechanism that takes him there. Once he starts, he's down a path and he's committed because he can't go back because of the cognitive dissonance in his mind. He has to continue on. The elephant will not turn around. He's committed. He has to be. Or he has to be accountable. Back to Alul, the man who's acted in accordance with the existing propaganda has taken his place in society. From then on, he has enemies. Often, he has broken with his group or his family. He may be compromised. He's forced to accept a new group, the new friends that propaganda makes for him. Often, he has committed an act reprehensible by traditional moral standards and has disturbed a certain order. He needs justification for this, and he gets more deeply involved by repeating the act in order to prove that it was just. <laughs> Thus, he's caught up in a movement that develops until it totally occupies the breadth of his conscience. Propaganda now masters him completely, and we must bear in mind that any prop this is big, and we must bear in mind that any propaganda that does not lead to this kind of participation is mere child's play. These are the social media avatars, man, doubling down to save face, appeal to the in-group, while emasculating the other, the interloper, the target of choice. This is trial by rhetorical combat. Once you start down a path, you cannot turn around, because turning around will cause shame, either internally or, God forbid, externally. You'll have to admit you were wrong about something. Oh my God, not in this day and age. You can't admit you're wrong about something. Holy shit, you can't change your mind. What about consistency? But you said this six years ago. Consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. 
It keeps you from evolving. It keeps you from changing. If you're worried about being wrong or making a mistake, you get sucked into the propaganda tar pit. Because you can't turn around then. You commit one wrong act. You say one wrong thing. You have one wrong belief. If you're too occupied with consistency or other people's impressions of your consistency, if that's all you're occupied with, you're fucked. You cannot change course. Your mind isn't free to go where it wants to go. You're like a locomotive on train tracks pointing in one direction and you can't get off those tracks. I think that's one of the most profound aspects of this that I think people miss. And once you start down that road, once you start letting somebody think for you and do your thinking for you, poke and prod you in a certain direction, you don't even know you're doing it, do you? You might. Some people might. Some people might consider changing their mind or reevaluating their views, but oh my God, the embarrassment and the shame, either self-directed or coming from the group. That will stop them. That's a big thing. It's big. It's huge. Been there. Not fun. I'll continue on. He does make a clarification. He does not say that any man can be made to obey any incitement to action in any way, whatever, from one day to the next. He does not say that in each individual prior elementary mechanisms exist on which it is easy to play and which will unfailingly produce a certain effect. Not everybody's the same. He does not hold with a mechanistic view of man. But we must divide propaganda into two phases. This is going to get fun now, kids. <laughs> there is pre-propaganda or sub-propaganda. And then there is active propaganda. This follows from what we have said earlier about the continuous and permanent nature of propaganda. I didn't read that part, but he did talk about that. And this is what we were talking about Matt, about whether or not uh, society is propaganda or culture is propaganda. Obviously, what must be continuous is not the active, intense propaganda of crisis, but the sub-propaganda that aims at mobilizing individuals, or in the etymological sense, to make them mobile and mobilize in order to thrust them in action at the appropriate moment. The sub-propaganda that aims at mobilizing individuals. Subpropaganda, the constant, quiet, subversive drone of propaganda. You may know this, or you may have a perception of this, as the liberal media bias. Not just on the news, though, throughout the entertainment industry. Have you noticed that? I noticed this 15 years ago. I supported it then. I was saying 15 years, of course, there's a liberal media bias. You have to be an idiot not to see that. Well... If there's a leftist bias, hmm, this is the pre-propaganda at work. Now, whether or not you agree with it doesn't really matter. Maybe you think it's great. Maybe you think it's the righteous thing to do. That's fine. It's still mind-fucking. Whether or not you think it's good or bad does not matter. It's an exercise in masturbation to try to define it as good or bad. Okay? But that is pre-propaganda. Clearly. And he says it's obvious that you cannot simply throw a man into action without any preparation. 
which is pre-propaganda, without having mobilized him psychologically and make him responsive, not to mention physically ready. The essential objective of pre-propaganda is to prepare man for a particular action, to make him sensitive to some influence, to get him into condition for the time when he will effectively and without delay or hesitation participate in an action. Seen from this angle, pre-propaganda does not have a precise ideological objective. Again, pre-propaganda does not have a precise ideological objective. It has nothing to do with an opinion, an idea, or a doctrine. It proceeds by psychological manipulation, by character modifications, changing the person, by creation of feelings or stereotypes. Stereotypes. Useful when the time comes. It must be continuous, slow, imperceptible. Man must be penetrated in order to shape such tendencies. He must be made to live in a certain psychological climate. He talks about two routes that uh, sub-propaganda takes, conditioned reflex and the myth. (laughs) Propaganda tries, first of all, to create conditioned reflexes in the individual by training him so that certain words, signs, symbols, even certain persons or facts provoke an unfailing reaction. (laughs) I may read this two more times. Propaganda tries, first of all, to create conditioned reflexes in the individual by training him so that certain words, signs, symbols, even certain persons or facts provoke an unfailing reaction. This is incredible. Certain words. Certain words. MAGA. Children engages signs, certain signs or symbols, Confederate statues, <laughs> even certain persons. <laughs> oh man, Trump derangement syndrome. Hillary Clinton. Do you think she doesn't trigger a uh, or provoke an unfailing reaction in the adequately propagandized on the right? Certain persons, certain facts. It's, this is incredible. Conditioned reflexes in the individual by training him so that certain words, signs, or symbols, even certain persons or facts, provoke an unfailing reaction. He continues that, but of course, in order for such a procedure to succeed, a certain amount of time must elapse, a certain period of training and repetition. This is 1965. Again, I'm going to keep reminding you of that. Do you think that technology has not shortened that gap? A period of training and repetition. What's more repetitive than the internet? What's more repetitive than social media? What is more repetitive than seeing a doctrine? An orthodoxy put forth in your echo chamber. Is there anything more repetitive than that? And you have the device in your front pocket at all times. You no longer have to be in front of a television set or next to a radio. Next to a radio or a television set that happens to be propagandizing you at that particular time, you have the propaganda device in your pocket at all times. You can always be reached. You can always be poked. You can always be prodded. Do you suppose that the period of training and repetition has shrunk dramatically in 55 years? I submit yes. I think it has. 
Says one cannot hope to obtain an automatic reaction after only a few weeks' repetition of the same formulas. A real psychic reformation must be undertaken so that after months of patient work, he says months here, of patient work, a crowd will react automatically in the hoped-for direction to some image. (laughs) After months. So if the time has been compressed by technology in 55 years, how long do you think it takes now? Especially if you've been pre-propagandized for decades. Hmm. Interesting. What is visible in propaganda, what is spectacular, and seems to us, Alul again, often uncomprehensible or unbelievable is possible. Only because of such slow and not very explicit preparation. Without this, he says... Nothing would be possible. The pre-propaganda. And I wonder, and of course reading this, not only just the standard media, the standard narrative put forth by the entertainment industry that you see all the time. I mean, you can, you can find this. You can see this. If you really look for it, you're going to see. Not, I'm not even talking about the news networks here. I'm talking about television shows. This has been the case since I was a little kid. I, I could always watch the... I knew this. I saw this when I was 10. That it always has a, a specific angle to it. So not only there, but I wonder about the news networks now. And I wonder about the echo chambers. This is all... Of course, it's all pre-propaganda. And then something happens. We'll get to that later. That's coming. All right, continuing on. The propagandist tries to create myths by which man will live. We've talked about those, uh, which respond to his sense of the sacred. Back to this again. I love it. Propagandist tries to create myths by which man will live, which respond to his sense of the sacred. He says that by myth, he means an all-encompassing, activating image, a sort of vision of desirable objectives that have lost their material, practical character and have become strongly colored, tainted, overwhelming, all-encompassing, and which displace from the conscience all that is not related to it. You become obsessed. You become puritanical. You become Westboro. Jonestown, ISIS, you're obsessed by this shit. Such an image pushes man to action precisely because it includes all that he feels is good, just, and true. He doesn't want to go into a metaphysical analysis of the myth. But he wants to mention that uh, the great myths that have been created by various propagandas, the myth of race, or the proletariat, or the Fuhrer, or the communist society, productivity, I would add justice. The myth of social justice. Eventually, the myth takes possession of a man's mind so completely that his life is consecrated to it. But that effect can be created only by slow, patient work by all the methods of propaganda. Only when conditioned reflexes have been created in the man and he lives in a collective myth can he be readily mobilized. Back to the religion thing. 
only when conditioned reflexes have been created in a man and he lives in a collective myth can he be readily mobilized. He points out that the U.S. prefers to utilize the myth, clearly, while the Soviet Union had for a long time uh, preferred the reflex. But he says the important thing is that when the time is ripe, the individual can be thrown into action by active propaganda, by the utilization of the psychological levers that have been set up, and by evoking the myth. No connection necessarily exists between his actions and the reflex or the content of the myth, you see. (laughs) The action is not necessarily psychologically conditioned by some aspect of the myth. No. And the most surprising thing is that the preparatory work leads only to man's readiness. Once he's ready, he can be mobilized effectively in very different directions. Triggered. But of course, the myth and the reflex must be continually rejuvenated and revived, or they will atrophy. The myth and the reflex must be continually rejuvenated and revived, or they will atrophy. Pre propaganda must be constant, whereas active propaganda can be sporadic when the goal is a particular action or involvement. I'm going to go back to that first line. Myth and the reflex must be continually rejuvenated and revived or they will atrophy. We are in the golden age of rejuvenating and reviving the myth and the reflex. You can do that in your front pocket. You can do that remotely from thousands and thousands of miles away on demand and immediately through those little devices in your pocket. The Golden Age of Propaganda, brought to you by technology. Specifically, Mr. Zuckerberg and Jack. (sighs) He also talks about political education in this section. And it says, in Lenin and Mao's sense, political education corresponds exactly to our idea of sub-propaganda or basic Propaganda, as Mr. Goebbels would say. He called it basic propaganda, Goebbels. Uh, For this education is in no way objective or disinterested. This might creep you out a little bit. Its only goal is to create in the individual a new Weltanschauung, which is worldview, particular philosophy or view of life. Worldview of an individual or a group. That's Weltanschauung. I'm just going to call it worldview from now on. I don't want to say that German word. <laughs> Inside which each of the propositions of propaganda would, will become logical. Right? Each of its demands, each of propaganda's demands will be indisputable. College campuses. It is a matter of forming new presuppositions, new stereotypes. Those are huge. That are prior justifications. For the reasons and objectives which propaganda will give to the individual. The presuppositions and the stereotypes, the justifications come first. They've been ejaculated into your mind. And then the reasons and objectives propaganda will provide later on to the individual. But while the prejudices and stereotypes in our societies are created in a somewhat incoherent fashion, singly and randomly, In political education, we have the systematic and deliberate creation of a coherent set of presuppositions that are above 
challenge. <laughs> it says that probably at the beginning of the Soviet Revolution, such political education probably did not have a precise objective or practical aims. Indoctrination. That was the end in and of itself. But since 1930, again, written in 1965, the concept had changed and political education had become the foundation of propaganda. In the Soviet Union, ideological indoctrination at his time was now the means of achieving an end. It's the foundation on which propaganda can convince the individual here and now whatever it wants to convince him of. This is creepy. To me, this when I read this, and I thought about our universities. I got a shudder down my spine. I'm going to go back over it. For this education is in no way objective or disinterested. Detached. Its only goal is to create in the individual a new worldview inside which each of the propositions of propaganda will become logical. <laughs> propaganda becomes logical. <laughs> only when seen and plugged into the inseminated worldview. And through those means, each of uh, propaganda's demands will be indisputable. It's a matter of forming new presuppositions, new stereotypes that are prior justifications for the reasons and objectives which propaganda will give to the individual later on. While the prejudices and stereotypes in society are created in somewhat of an incoherent fashion, in political education we have the systematic and deliberate creation of a coherent set of presuppositions, stereotypes, that are above challenge. Ideological indoctrination is now the means of achieving an end. In the Soviet Union in 1965. And I wonder about today. It is the foundation on which propaganda can convince the individual here and now of whatever it wants to convince him. And finally, winding down, he uses the Soviet Union as an example. Again, 1965. Uh, he says, uh, to make this clear, we will use the classic terms of propaganda and agitation, taking a new sense. Propaganda is the eludication of the Marxist-Leninist doctrine and corresponds to pre-propaganda. Agitation's goal. Agitation's goal is to make the individual act here and now, sort of as a function of their political education and also in terms of their political education, which corresponds to what he's calling propaganda. He continues to say that active experience, in effect, makes further education easier. And he says the different elements are easily mixed. Media is given the task to increase, quote-unquote, political knowledge and political awareness. Now that's the pre-propaganda. And to rally the population to support the policy of the party and or government, which is propaganda. The media must organize the thoughts and feelings of the audience in the required proletarian direction. The effects of such political education are often described by Mao. It creates class consciousness... It destroys the individualist. It destroys the individualist. It destroys the individualist and petty bourgeois spirit while assimilating the individual in a collectivity of thought. It creates ideological conformity in a new framework. 
It leads to understanding the necessity for the sharing of property, obedience to the state, creation of authority, and a hierarchy. Remember, this is the old Soviet Union talking about 1965. I have to remind you of that. It leads the comrade to vote for suitable representatives and to withstand the weariness and difficulties of the battle for increased production, which was always an issue. This describes perfectly, he says, the role of infrastructure assigned to political education in the process of propaganda. Again, that's academia, campuses, cable news, general television. It's the will and gracifying of everything and tyrannical inclusivity. Yes, I said it. Tyrannical inclusivity. You are not allowed to be your own man. That's just one section of this book. That is the longest one I've got. But I want to reiterate something. I'm talking a lot about sociological propaganda. I think that's the pre-propaganda today. I think these are direct parallels. And we get this on a constant basis. It's almost like a subharmonic drone constantly underneath everything. Oh, oh. Constantly reminding us of what is acceptable thought, what's acceptable belief. And it's getting more and more totalitarian as time goes on. It's getting more bold. Pre-propaganda, orthopraxy, active propaganda. I really honestly believed when I started this shit up that this was going to be easy. This isn't going to be easy. I swear to God, I didn't even know that there were different kinds of propaganda. So there you go, Matt. I think maybe that was what you were talking about when you said that uh, you were curious as to whether uh, propaganda was the building block of culture in a society. The sociological pre-propaganda stuff definitely plays a role. And I'll tell you, a lot of what we're hearing from college campuses these days, this last part here, as far as political education in the Lenin and Mao sense, The stuff that I just read there at the end is creepy. And one other thing I should mention is that uh, beyond all the uh, details that I've been sort of disseminating to you, these multiple dissertations or these chunks of a dissertation, are the philosophical implications of all this. I can't sit down and delve into this even personally, quietly, on my own time. Because going back all the way to this Buddhist sect that I talked about, I think maybe last year or earlier this year, there's a sect of Buddhism, I think. I think it's Buddhism. Whose foundational principle, its main idea, is that human beings cannot see reality. That we are literally, physically, for whatever reason, incapable of seeing the world as it is. I don't know a lot about this sect other than I'm very interested in it now. (laughs) But I'm going to assume that this has something to do with the kaleidoscope-type prism of reality, perception of reality, the fogginess of perception that comes from an overactive, engorged ego. Not being able to discern between the emotive judgments the psychological conclusions, the happy facts, what we want to be true, what we'd like to believe is true, and reality, and the mechanism to rationalize all that together, post hoc reasoning, 
rationalizations, heights, elephant. And I think that makes us incredibly, incredibly open to manipulation. Now, if that's the case, and it sure as hell appears that it is, what does that say? Those are the philosophical implications that I'm not ready to address yet. I've talked about this a number of times. This is the specific evolutionary step that we have to take. Or, we're going to take ourselves right back to the Stone Age. Eventually, we're just sort of biding our time right now. If we can't figure out a way to see things as they are, that is our destiny. The book of Revelations, releasing the devil. Devil, The devil comes to rule the earth, the ego. The dark side of human duality dominates the world, destroys it, and back to the Garden of Eden we go. Back to the basics, back to paradise, heaven, however you want to look at it, back to the human womb. This is what I was talking about with Fingerprints of the Gods. Yeah, I I think that book's probably, (laughs) most of it's probably bullshit. Uh, Graham Hancock, that's it. He thinks that society has risen and fallen risen and fallen, risen and fallen multiple times throughout the course of human history. He also has a theory, I think, if I remember this. I haven't read his book in 15 years. Uh, But he also has thoughts and ideas that maybe aliens came and wisened us up. I'm like that. I don't know that he's wrong about the civilization rising and falling thing. There are certain similarities in the mythology worldwide as far as the Great Flood, the virgin birth, all of that stuff. It seems to predate at least recorded history. has come from somewhere. This Revelations thing really sticks in my head because with this technology and where we are now and the path that we're moving down toward, the human ego has been unleashed. The id has been unleashed, and we are in the process. I think it's perfectly clear. We are in the process of scraping away that thin veneer of civilization in deference to the ego and the id. We like it. And if we're that susceptible to it, we are incredibly, incredibly prone to manipulation. That's how everything, I think, maybe, maybe the hacking going on isn't the electoral system, maybe our minds are being hacked because we've got a back door. The firewall has an open gate back there. And people can just click and walk on through it and make, turn our, our database, corrupt the database. Corrupt the functioning mind. A lot of people like to think of their minds as a computer. You've got an opening in the firewall back there in your cognitive security system that anybody can just click on and walk through. And destroy the smooth functioning of your divine mind. That is propaganda. I'm afraid. The only real prophylactic here, the only protection, the only propaganda condom is abstinence. Staying away from it. Are you the current events man? Don't be. Remember, the man who knows nothing is closer to the truth far closer than the man who believes falsehoods. If you can't tell truth from falsehood, disconnect, disengage, and get yourself back closer to the truth by knowing nothing. And propaganda, man, is like crack. Once you have it, once you've 
<laughs> oh, once you've, once you've joined the cult and embraced the self-righteousness of moral certitude, your shit's like crack because you're next to God in your own mind. And that sense of self-superiority, we're all susceptible to that. And you're going to be hooked. And then when it's taken away, the withdrawal symptoms. I've talked about this. The withdrawal symptoms he outlines in this book. I have felt some of them. I've heard other people echo them without having any idea what's in here. And they're terrifying. If you're heavily steeped in this, and it's suddenly taken away from you, you're going to experience what, you, what feels like depression. It's a, an intense sense of anime. Because your purpose, your God, your self-superiority, your place upon the pedestal has been yanked from beneath you. And now you're, oh, what am I? Oh, my God. My life has no purpose. Oh, shit. I've experienced this by losing my religion. I've also experienced this by losing my political religion when I left the resistance a few years ago. There's an element there. You don't have really any bearing. You have to refigure everything out. What was explaining the world, what was explaining the country, what was explaining mankind, and your position within society and the world is gone. Everything you believed is taken away from you. Your entire worldview has to be recrafted. And you have to do that suddenly, alone. Because the other faithful people, the rest of the congregations, like leaving the Mormon church. Oh my God, he's, is he becoming a Trump? I had a, a woman ask me, one of my old resistance friends, Hi, how are you? Let me speak directly to you. Do you remember when you asked me? What the hell happened to you? Well, that's it. I've changed. And you were not the first person who was absolutely horrified by the fact that I left the Mormon church, metaphorically speaking. He's no longer following the word of Joseph Smith. Oh, my God, he's lost. <sighs> he's fallen. It's hard. She was not the first person that I had had that experience with. There are many. Most of them online. And many, but not all, of those relationships were based on politics, were based on ideology, were based on this back and forth with each other. We're so awesome because we're liberals. Oh, yes, we are. Oh, look at those heathens over there. I can't believe they're driving pickup trucks and they're ruining the environment by oh, shilling up their SUVs with gasoline. And they hunt. Oh, my God, they're hunt. They kill these poor innocent animals. Oh, and they, they use the word faggot. Oh, my God, what's wrong with them? Oh, oh they, they voted for John McCain. Ah! I spent years doing that, and a lot more. And when I stopped doing that, the people that I used to do that with suddenly had no way to know. They had no 
bearing on how to relate to me. Nor I them, because we hadn't developed any kind of relationship beyond politics. Because we were so drunk on it. We enjoyed it. It's not unlike back when I was drinking all the time. I had my friends, we'd go to the bar every weekend. Hunting questionable beaver. Woo! Party! When I stopped drinking, or maybe they did. A lot of them got married, had kids, and didn't want to go out and drink anymore. And we would sit down and hang out and be like, well, we ain't got nothing in common now. What the fuck is this? All we did was go and drink. Go and party. Go chase tail. Well, now what? Well, most of the time, nothing. It was weird. It's the same idea here. It's the same thing when these relationships are based on a common political belief. And suddenly, one of those adherents to the belief changes, then what do you got? I've experienced this. I'm telling you, maybe I've, maybe I've said it a few times already today. <laughs> I went through this. I'm still going through it periodically. I don't know what to do with it. This is painful. When you realize that you're being propagandized, I'm asking you to do a very difficult thing here. I am asking you to put yourself in pain. I'm asking you to leave Jonestown. I'm sort of like that, that Ryan congressman who went down there. You okay? You sure you're not being hoodwinked? You sure you want to be here in French Guyana? Guyana? You sure? Oh, and I'm getting the evil eye from Jimmy Jones over there, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What happened to you? The rest of the, the faithful. That's what I'm asking you to do, though. What I'm asking you to do is take control of your own goddamn mind. I'm asking you to have some intellectual dignity. Rather than just wallowing, wallowing in the warmth and the certainty of inseminated beliefs and inseminated senses of self-superiority, I'm asking you to take control of your own mind, to stand on your own two feet, to think for yourself, to be a man or a woman, but be your own man or your own woman. Try to figure out what it is you think rather than assuming that your thoughts, opinions, and beliefs are yours when they're not. That's the thing you got to realize. I, I know a lot of you. I know this. I know this. A lot of you have twinges of doubt about certain things. As far as your ideological religion goes, there are little passages that are like Leviticus to you. Wait a minute, should I really stun somebody who's menstruating? I don't even know if that's in there. I'm just using that. You know, like a Christian would think that, right? He'd read Leviticus. <laughs> He'd see the shellfish shit. You're like, eh, I don't know about that. What I'm asking you to do is the same thing. I'm asking you if you've got that sliver in your head, if there's part of your doctrine, I don't care what side of the, the, the political spectrum it's coming from either. If there's something that just doesn't sit right with you about this, but you're willing to go along with it, you're not wanting to question it because it's going to lead you someplace else. It's going to lead you someplace where you've got to ask, well, what else is wrong then? What else am I just going along with? 
Am I just believing this because everybody else is believing it and I have taken it to mean that that's right? In quotes. I'm asking you to think. I'm asking you to disconnect long enough. Do it for me if you need to. I don't care. I'm not looking to make any money on this fucking podcast anyway. I could care less. I don't care if I get 500 downloads this week or 10. My financial situation will not change. And it's going to stay that way. I promise you. But I'm asking you to disconnect long enough to really examine what it is you think. You. You. As opposed to what everybody else thinks or what you think you're supposed to think or what you think you're supposed to believe. Try to use your own eyes. Try to use your own eyes to see the effects, to see the manipulations. If you look hard enough and with clear enough eyes, you may see some authoritarianism creeping into your your team. You may sniff that. Again, I do not care what side of the political spectrum you're on. You may see some of the inconsistencies and lies. You may understand that these children really aren't in cages. And then you may ask yourself, Self, why are they trying to create this visceral image in my head of a child in a cage? Are they trying to manipulate? Oh, uh oh. Yeah, maybe they're not concentration camps. Hmm. What else are they doing? What else are they bullshitting me about? How else are they yanking my chain? And why are they doing that? Oh, my God, because, oh, that makes me hate people who support him. Again, make your own examples over there in Trumpistan. The same thing happens over there. So, yeah, this stuff is rough. It's a hard path to walk. It's a hard path that I'm asking Asking you to, uh, to trudge along. I'm trying to give you a map if you choose to. And Matt pointed out, too, that um, he was really concerned about this. Getting too far down this road because, as he said, he's got enough rattling around in his head that alienates him from most conversations. I understand this, bud. Believe me. He called it self-imposed alienation. It's not how Mr. Alul defines it. Alienation. I'll get to that soon, my friend. Uh, but I, I suggested to him to read uh, Emerson's Self-Reliance. That helps a ton. Helps me, anyway. And uh, Mill, Beyond Liberty thing. In fact, I wrote a piece. I have it sitting right over there. Uh, I'm not ready to uh, put it out yet. I'm waiting for the right place to use this thing. But uh, a piece relating to exactly that thing. The solitary man. The person who's willing and able, able and willing to stand up, stand on his own two cognitive feet and figure out what it is he thinks rather than having his ideological religion and the scripture craft the world for him. Ideology explains it all. Woo! No, that's easy. That's, that's a cop-out. It's a cop-out. It's easy way out, man. And maybe you're too busy. That could be. Who has time to think about shit like this, Todd? Well, I do. <laughs> but I don't live your life. Your li- my life is a lot easier than most of yours. I understand that. I'm able to do things that most people, most normal people aren't. 
especially people with children. I understand that. But if that's the case, it still doesn't change the fact that you're probably being deceived. Just because you don't have time to investigate and find the truth doesn't mean you're not being lied to. It doesn't let you off the fucking hook. You understand that? I don't have time not to be bullshit. What kind of logic is that? If you don't have time to investigate everything, to suss everything out, become a cynic. Something. Put something up. Just try to put something up in place of that, that hole in your firewall. Just try. Or just unfucking plug. Instead of becoming a political you know, activist or some fundamentalist, take up golf. Take up video games. Man, there's a lot of great video games out there. You know the time you spend online reading, eating your political doctrine, your information, your scripture? Go kill some fucking super mutants. It's a better use of your time. I swear to God, it's a more productive use of your time. I'm not even kidding when I say this. It's a less culturally destructive use of your time than giving yourself a propaganda enema. But I do get it. I do understand being alienated from former friends. And that's not easy. You're going to have to rebuild, man. Especially if you are if you are one of these congregationalists, one of these fundamentalists, and you decide to step away. It's not unlike the Mormon church. You know, you step away from the Mormon church or a lot of religions, you're ostracized. And a lot of times with a lot of people, the same thing happens with politics now. The religious aspect of this, the religious similarities, Puritanism, similarities, the, the parallels are striking. I'm tired. I don't even know how to debrief this. I don't think I'm going to. I don't think I need to. Uh, not today. But yeah. Propaganda as the building block of culture via sociological propaganda, pre-propaganda, and perhaps creating the realm of the sacred. Political education camps disguised as colleges? Could be. Could be. <laughs> oh my God! Escapeofthecave.com is the website. And I'm just poking you a little bit. A lot of it. Also, you can get me over at uh, ChristopherMedia.net. That is the uh, network. Check out the other shows over there. And uh, at, uh, at ATZ Pod on the damn thing Twitter. You're going to get hit with a few waves this week. That was number one. Hope you enjoyed it. Till next time, so long. <laughs>